0: We've completed a, a day of the retreat. Congratulations. Is, am I loud enough in the back? Good. And on the first night of the Dharma talks, um, it seems helpful to consider aloud what we're doing here since some of you have perhaps may have had moments during the day of doubt or even great regret at having signed up as you did. But here you are in a pickle, so we might as well figure out what's going to you know, come of this. When we look at Buddhist teachings over thousands of years of practice, In their essence, they are an invitation to remember who we really are. Buddhist texts begin with the words, O nobly born, or you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, and the sons and daughters of good families, all. um, Remember who you really are. Remember your true nature what my teacher Ajahn Chah called the original mind, your original purity. And the Buddha goes on to say, in its true state, the mind is luminous, shining, clear, but it gets caught by the visiting fears and delusions, attachments. But this isn't who we really are. And to come and meditate, to take our seat, the meditation hall to do our walking meditation, our work meditation is not so much to sit through a sitting or walk through a walking or finish the work um, or even to try to make yourself quiet or peaceful or whatever your idea might be. It's not so much about self improvement, it's about learning to return to a freedom that we all have as a capacity. Our Buddha nature knows this. A freedom and openness and ease wherever we are. To come and rest in the reality of the present and know that we can be open and gracious and free in any circumstance. In this way, meditation is unlike almost anything else that we do in our life except perhaps making music or dancing. In making music, the idea isn't to get to the end of the piece of music. If that were so, the fastest musicians would be the best, right? Okay, got through Beethoven, now I'll go through Mozart and on to whatever you want to finish. The idea in making music is to be in harmony with the music or dancing. You don't find a partner and say, all right, let's dance to the dining hall and get tea as in a destination, but rather you dance in rhythm with the moment and the music where we are. And meditation, then, is more than anything a discovery that we can live in the reality of the present, where we are, with a wholeness and an attention and an ease and a freedom that is possible for all human beings. Oh, nobly born, remember this, remember this possibility. Now, all that's well and good um, and terribly important to remember. But there's another side to things, perhaps best expressed by Zen Master Suzuki Roshi, who said, you are perfect just the way you are. Big relief, isn't it? He said, you're perfect just the way you are. He paused for a moment. He said, and there's still room for improvement. (laughs) And that's a bit of the paradox that we work with in meditation. That where we're going is here and now, the reality of the present. And yet, and yet also in coming into the reality of the present, there is a possibility for training or developing or cultivating or supporting this capacity for freedom, for compassion, for loving kindness in a systematic way. In Pali or Sanskrit, the words the Buddha uses are, for the practice we're doing, one is apamada, which means care, to take care with each thing that we do so that we're truly present. And another is yoniso manasikara, which means wise attention or full presence where we are. And in a certain way, even though the destination is just now, here, the present, this moment, there is, in the other way of looking, A sense of cultivation, nourishment, development. Like tending a garden, you could say. You don't make the plants grow, they grow of themselves. And in the same way, our meditation expresses our true nature. But it does help to tend the garden to weed and prune and fertilize and so forth. And one of the things that's particularly helpful that you see already on the retreat in the first day... Is that it's difficult to garden alone? I mean, maybe it's okay when you're home in your garden, but the particular kind of gardening we're doing here is got a lot of brambles and poison ivy and various other things that are not so easy to tend to. My friend Annie Lamott, the humorist, she wrote, "My mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone." Right. <laughs> So here we're sitting and meditating and walking, trying to just be in the present, gracious, kind, and so forth, and then other stuff happens. So how is it that we can tend to the present moment, tend to our experience, so that these qualities of awakening, of freedom, really manifest in our life? Early one morning... While out with his alms bowl in the first years of his teaching, the Buddha approached an area that was being plowed in the spring plowing by a wealthy Brahmin landowner. And this landowner was distributing food to the workers. When the landowner saw the Buddha coming for alms he said, hey monk, you, I plow and sow and having worked in this way, I eat You should also plow and sow instead of begging, and then you too might eat. A little bit of a challenge for the Buddha. And the Buddha looked at him and said, "O landowner, I also plow and sow, and having done so, I eat. And the Brahmin landowner says, You claim to be a plowman, but I don't see anything of the farmer in you. Tell me what kind of plowing is it you do? And the Buddha replied, Trust is the seed, composure the rain. Clarity is my plow and yoke, virtue my guide pole, mindfulness the harness. Attention the plow blade, well guarded in action and speech, temperate in food, I use truth to weed and cultivate freedom. Wise effort is the oxen drawing the plough toward liberation nirvana freedom without regret. This is how I plough, and it bears the most wonderful fruit. And then the ploughman explained, Ah, I understand you are indeed a great farmer, and it bears the fruit of freedom and offered food to the Buddha. And the way the story goes that the food couldn't be put in the Buddha's bowl because it turned red hot at that time. And so the plowman just bowed to him and the Buddha walked on. And if any of you are farmers, you would understand um, the symbolism because when you plow in the earth, after a while the plow gets hot. There's a friction that heats it up after a long furrow. And so here was the Buddha's bowl as his plow, kind of glowing with the heat of illumination and practice. So, in this way, our practice is like tending the garden faith and mindfulness we practice, wise effort is the oxen. And then the obstacles come weeds, insects, drought all of those things. And for most people, spiritual life and meditation unfolds exactly in this way. We plant seeds, attention, care, loving kindness, and then what happens? Obstacles arise. Weeds, drought, insects, you know, other kinds of difficulties in the garden. We set a direction, we tend, and then we deal with them. But that's really the way our life unfolds anyway, isn't it? If you start a business, obstacles will come. Maybe you don't have enough capital, or a key employee quits, or the market changes. Or your supplier gets bought up or the competition gets stiffer or the interest rates rise. And each of these obstacles comes and you meet the obstacle and continue on with your business. Or maybe you you think about it in terms of parenting. You have this beautiful little baby and then after a little bit they want to put everything in their mouth. Right? Right? And then they start to play with other kids and they want to hit them with blocks, right? Or run into the street, you know, and you have to sort of socialize them a little bit. And then they get sick and there's illnesses, or they ride their bicycle and they fall and they get hurt, you know, or they do their sports, or they become a teenager or they go through puberty, you know, and they become sexual beings and independent and they want to drive around. You know, And then they experiment with drugs and alcohol and so forth. And each one of these, if you're a parent, it's like, oh, <gasps> here we go again, right? The next obstacle to the nourishing of the, this, this being of a child. In social change, it's the same. If we want to address the sufferings of the world, war and hunger and racism and injustice, We start to work in whatever way we can, and sometimes we succeed, and as often as not, there are setbacks. Thomas Merton, in advising an activist, said, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no result at all, if not perhaps bring about its opposite. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. Or in love relationships, you start by falling in love, if you're lucky and unfortunate, both, and then it changes, right? And then you have the real relationship as those projections start to fall away. And the task then, here we are, is to breathe, to return to our breath, to return to our steps, to be patient and forgiving and to work with the different obstacles as they arise, which they will. You sit here and Decide to pay attention to your body and breath, and what happens? Well, there's a sign um, in this cartoon um, a, a car is going across a vast desert in Utah, and a roadside sign says, Your own tedious thoughts, next 200 miles, <laughs> right? And it's not very different in meditation. You sit down and say, oh, I'm going to have a great retreat. And then you get all the reruns, right? It's not even like new shows very much. That's pretty, that's pretty rare. Mostly it's like the oldies that are playing again. You get I Love Lucy over and over, or whatever your inner version of that happens to be. Or you sit and all the stuff that's held in your body starts to arise, doesn't it? Here you are minding your own business, and your shoulders start to hurt, and your back hurts, and your neck and your jaw hurts. It's not like you're hiking in the high mountains with a big pack. You're just minding your business, right? But what happens? You start to get quiet, sit here, and all of a sudden, all the stuff that's carried in the body, the tensions and stress of our life that, that collect because... There's another moment of stress and if we're not so mindful we contract and it gets held in the musculature. It actually gets held physically in the body. And then you sit and your body says, hey, remember me? And the shoulders start to knot. And when you feel the knots trying to unwind, trying to unrele- to release. And all your moods and emotions come and go as they do through the day. As a farmer channels water to his land, as a carpenter turns his wood, so the wise one directs their own heart and mind, says the Buddha. Do not ignore the effect of right action, of wise attention, saying this will come to nothing. Just as by the gradual fall of raindrops the water jar is filled, so in time the wise ones become filled with goodness. So there's this sense of the planting of seeds, the, the willingness to tend to the garden of our own heart and mind. A story that I like very much from a, a friend, Lynn Twist, who's been involved over many years um, with the um, dilemma of worldwide hunger. And the fact that we have actually enough food, but we have too much greed and too much hatred and too much prejudice, so the food doesn't get to the people that are hungry. And she writes anyway about one of the projects she worked on being invited to Senegal and to the Sahel, which is the part of Senegal that's in the um, east along the Sahara Desert. Um, because there were a series of villages way out in the desert that were losing their water, um, drying up. And losing their water, they were going to lose their whole way of life and have to move into the city, into those little tin roof shacks that happens when when people from the rural parts of, of the world are forced off their land. So she and some people were invited to try to come and meet with these villagers. And she says, our Senegalese drivers um, took us out into the vast desert and drove and drove for a good part of a day. And then after a while, after a long time, our driver, the lead driver, stopped and turned off the engine. And we just sat there for 20 minutes at 30 minutes in the middle of this huge desert, and all of a sudden we heard some sound in the distance, and it was drums coming toward us. And pretty soon there was this whole procession of children and men and women from this village. And we found them streaming from an old, big old baobab tree. And we met with them, and they invited us to the village shouting and cheering. And there we were with them all, and we spent a day meeting with the mullahs, with the leaders of the village. And they told us how the villages in their area were losing their water. And they didn't know what to do. And the government didn't help this far out in the desert. They didn't know how to help themselves. And she says, I met with the village headmen and the mullahs and the chief, who spoke for everyone. And then she said, I had a feeling that it would be helpful to speak with the women. So I asked, could I have a meeting with the women of the village? And this was, of course, not allowed. And after a bit of bargaining, said, well, we might be able to get you a pump and some equipment, so forth, as bargaining goes. Finally, she was allowed to meet in a council with the women of the village. And in this tribal circle, several of the women elders spoke right away, saying they were so glad I could listen to them because it was clear to them that there was an underground lake beneath this area. They had seen it in their visions, and all they needed was help to find this water, to dig a well But women weren't supposed to dig wells in this culture. That was men's work. It wasn't permitted. They, They had other kinds of work to do. And they were so convincing and so strong in their vision that I trusted them, she said. All they needed was support. So I went back and met with the mullahs, baking hot, and we spent a long time talking, and along many cups of tea and a lot of bargaining. You know how this goes. And finally, with enough of a bargain and partnership, the men agreed to allow the women to dig a well. And over the next year and a half, the community rationed its supplies of water, and the women dug with hand tools and equipment we brought them, deeper and deeper in the ground, singing and drumming, and caring for one another and the children Never doubting the water was there. The men would stand aside and watch and drum for them sometimes, skeptically, but let them continue. The women were anything but doubtful. They were certain that if they dug deep enough, the water would be there, and it was. And after a year and a half, they reached the underground lake of their visions. And in the years since, the men and women have built a pumping system, a water tower for storage. And now dozens of villages have been transformed. Gardens, irrigation, farming, schools, the creation of a fabric of life and a new respect for the women of that community. And I love that story, both for the literal fact of that underground water and for the poetic meaning that it's there for each of us. O nobly born, yes, there will be difficulties, and underneath there is goodness and love and beauty and freedom in every heart to be found. As the bee gathers nectar and perfume from the flower without marring its beauty, so let the wise one wander, bringing harm to none and blessings to all. Like garlands woven from a heap of flowers, Fashion from your life as many good deeds. So these are some of the teachings from the Buddha of tending and gardening and plowing, awakening. But it's important as we hear these not to become too idealistic. Oh, what a great garden we're going to have. You know, the Martha Stewart meditation, if I do this right, house and garden sitting, here we are, everything, the white picket fence and all of it tended, it doesn't work quite like that. If you can sit quietly after difficult news, if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if you can see your neighbors travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy, if you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate, if you can fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill, if you can always find contentment just where you are, you are probably a dog. (laughs) So we get all these ideas about, okay, we're going to have a garden and it's going to be really a cool garden, exactly beautiful like on the cover, you know, which it was for a moment when they got everybody to clean it up. But it's messier than that because we're talking about our humanity and our life. And so it's important not to be idealistic but rather to say this moment is a moment in which we can bring care, wise attention, freedom, compassion, in which we can plant the seeds of awakening and also feel the fruit of it. The Buddha says, as an invitation, my friends, there's a most wonderful way for you as living beings to realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the path of wisdom and compassion, realize freedom, and this is the establishment of mindfulness, of care and attention. Mindfulness in the body and feelings and mind. It's an invitation to freedom, moment by moment. Now, you can't do it by force. um, Pretty much everybody learned that today, right? It doesn't take that long, and even the slow learners among us, myself included, when I was a young man, I was going to do it by force. You can sort of do it for a little bit by force, and then, of course, it's like, a rubber band or something, it snaps back. It just doesn't work that way. Instead, there's a kind of tending. You fertilize, you prune, you be willing to start again when it's difficult, over and over. Julia Child gives instructions for meditation from her cooking show. She says, and remember, if you're in the kitchen and you drop the lamb, you can just pick it up. Who's going to know, right? Right? <laughs> And it's pretty much the same in meditation. You drop the lamb and you pick it back up again. There is, um, there is the tending, but not the controlling. I wouldn't coax the plant if I were you. Such watchful nurturing may do it harm. Let the soil rest from so much digging and wait until it's dry before you water it. The leaf's inclined to find its own direction. Give it a chance to seek the sunlight for itself. Much growth is stunted by too careful prodding, too eager tenderness. The things we love, we also have to learn to leave alone. And so there is a a kind of balance of coming back and tending and planting and reconnecting, but in a gracious way and here you do it and you kind of tend and so forth and then the weeds sprout up and the weeds come of feelings all the grief that we carry that's been untended and all of a sudden you get quiet and your heart says oh you didn't take time to weep those tears for this loss that happened or that hope that was dashed you know or all the fears or the frustration the worry, the anger that we carry. The stories that we tell come back. You know those stories that I talked about. So many the mind has. Sleepiness comes and difficulties come. You sit here and you start to feel lonely. Don't surrender your loneliness too quickly. As the poet Hafiz, I think it's either Hafiz or Rumi, but I think it's Hafiz. Don't surrender your loneliness too quickly. Let it season you as few ingredients can. So if you're bored or you're lonely, or the tears that need to be wept come, don't run away from them. Be bored. You know, otherwise, at home, the minute you get bored, you open the refrigerator, right? Or call somebody or something. The minute you feel lonely, you run away. Because you can't be with yourself. So when the loneliness or the boredom or the fear comes, let yourself stay with it. Let it season you. Say, oh yes, this too is part of the garden. And bring the care and attention and the sense of the capacity to be present for this too. And then your mind will come and it'll say, eh, you're not doing it right, you could do it better, you know, or you are doing it right, you're so good you know or if only your mother or father hadn't treated you this way your whole life would be better you know you know all those stuff that it tells you and kind of all the judgments and praise and blame and all the history that you have from your childhood and all these things is that who you are i hope not the mind will tell you a lot of somewhat believable stories don't put too much stock in them Really, it's, 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 it has no pride, right? And it will tell you anything. <laughs> so one meditator left a retreat a few years ago. And she went to the uh, airport to fly back to where she lived and stopped in the little store there before the gate to pick up a magazine to read and to get a um, bag of cookies. And she sat in the waiting area, reading her magazine. Guy sat down, seat on the other side of this little table there. And to her great surprise, he opened the bag of cookies that was there and started kind of, she looked at him and he offered one to her. (laughs) So she, she took it and then he started to eat the cookies and she thought, wow, you know, what nerve. So she ate a cookie and he ate one and they went kind of down. It wasn't a big bag. and Pretty soon there was like one left and he looked at her, you know, do you want some of this? And she took it, you know. And she was, of course, rather upset inside by this invasion, if you will. But she'd been practicing meditation on retreat. So she kind of let it go and just noticed all her indignation and all her feelings and so forth. And then uh, they called her flight. She got in her seat, put her bag down under under where she was sitting, strapped herself in, and then opened to take out her magazine. And in her bag she found her own bag of cookies. (laughs) Same kind, of course. So, we have all these ideas, you know, about who they are and what they're doing to us and so forth. And in meditation, you get to see this and actually tend back, tend back to yourself, not to the thoughts, but to the experience of the moment, even the difficult ones. Remember the seeds you're planting embarrassed, humbled. That's a part of it. You can see with mindfulness and care. Oh, that's just embarrassment. That's foolishness. Zen Master Ryokan, Japan's most beloved poet, he wrote Spring morning, begging rounds are finished. I hang my bowl by the side of the Buddhist shrine to play with the children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. So you see these, the weeds spring up, the thoughts come, I can do it, I can't do it, I'm good, I'm bad. Don't listen to that. I mean, meditation isn't about good and bad. There isn't the right experience. There is being present for what's here and saying yes this too is part of the dance. And learning to trust the capacity of mindfulness and attention and kindness and care. And remember the seeds. It's so mysterious. What seeds are you planting? Self-pity? Judgment? Or the seeds of compassion, tenderness, care? Plant anyway. Kathy Sneed was a community activist in San Francisco, and more than 20 years ago, she became concerned for the life of so many people who were in the San Francisco County Jail, which used to have a big farm and sort of was derelict, and so she went in and she, she got a little bit of money and got permission from the warden and invited the men to grow flowers and vegetables in the garden plot sort of raised a bit of money for this. And to be able to grow a garden with their own hands, to be responsible for its blossoming, to overcome insects and drought, brought out beautiful things in these people that had been thrown away by society. Because our prisons, our, our prison system, is the, the most terrible kind of... Um, millions of people thrown into these cells. Um, and they're, they're racist Poverty prisons, if you're born in the wrong part of town or you're born, you know, with a certain race or skin color or something, likelihood is you'll end up in prison. Um, And so here are all these people who had nothing to care about or care for. And she said she offered to those who wanted these garden plots and the prison wardens were amazed by the change. You know, here's one one big guy, macho giant, with all these tattoos saying, Hey, don't step on my babies. Take care of my, you know, take care when you go near my plot. That's all right. The garden became so important for a lot of these people that their lives revolved around it. In fact, when some of them were released, they would go out and commit petty crimes again to get back in and, you know, tend to their garden. So then she had to start the community garden project so there was something to do when you got out. (laughs) That's kind of what we're doing here, the community garden project. But in the same way, it's like the breath that we attend to or the phrases of loving kindness and compassion. We tend to it. We care for what we're giving When we fall asleep because there's too much pain or fear or grief, we can be kind with that. Oh, this is sleepiness. This is fear. This is difficulty. That's okay too. You don't have to force it or rush it. It's your tenderness in attention that will allow the beauty of your heart to shine. The violets in the mountains have broken the rocks, writes Tennessee Williams. So Sharon Salzberg, my dear friend and co-founder of IMS, writes, I was leading a day-long metta retreat at Jerry Brown's center called We the People in Oakland. I try to have participants do walking meditation on the city streets so they can practice their metta with whoever walks by. One woman was having a big struggle with Meta. It felt so dry. No feelings would come, and she wanted them. I told her about planning siege and just to trust. During the next walking period, she chose to walk on the train platform across the street at Jack London Station. As she did, a train pulled in. She tried Meta. One of the people who got off was a man in a suit, obviously hurried, distracted, unaware, she noticed herself judging him. He looked so uptight. Then she judged herself. See, I'm just no good at this. But she took a breath and continued wishing him well as he walked down the long train platform. Then he walked right up to her and said, "'Excuse me, ma'am, this may sound strange. I've never done this before, but I'm facing a really bad situation, and you seem to be such a kind and peaceful person.' And I'd just like to ask you to pray for me. And she did. You don't know. You know, you plant your seeds. And it's not yours to decide how and when and what form they blossom. The secret. Remember, you paid for this retreat, so here you go. The secret, right? It says in the Bhagavad Gita, The secret is to act well without attachment to the results, to the fruits of the action. And something so important and beautiful comes from this. A few years ago, there was the, I don't know, the 50th or 60th anniversary of the siege of St. Petersburg, the siege of Leningrad, now St. Petersburg in Russia, which was surrounded by the German army for three years during the Second World War, and I think something like six or seven hundred thousand people died in the siege of the city. And there was a there was a television show about this, interviewing some people who had been lived through it. And um, then they interviewed one old woman, a tiny, fragile figure and she talked about what had happened and how people had tended to one another in that time and what it meant to plant seeds and keep your hope. She said at 11 11 years old she'd gone out to get the small portion of bread which was distributed to each person for her mother and for herself. And on this particular day on the way back, Outside the shop, the bread slipped out of her hands and fell into a mud puddle. She felt her heart suffocate of the thought that this would mean more hunger than they could already just barely tolerate. And then a woman from the other side of the street came over to her. She'd seen the child drop the bread. And she took the bread that she'd just gotten for herself and her family and broke it in half and gave it to her. And now on television, the old woman who was telling the story stood up and went to her cupboard and took out a china box and out of that box took out a small bundle and unwrapped it. And in it was a tiny piece of that piece of bread, which she had kept for 60 years to remind her. She said, this is what gives me hope. What seeds do we plant. It's so mysterious because we're interconnected with one another and with this whole world in such a deep and mysterious way. And when we plant beauty, it affects everyone else. Again from the Buddha. When a traveler at last comes home from a far journey With what gladness his or her family and friends receive them, even so shall your good deeds welcome you like friends, and with what rejoicing as you pass from one stage of life to another. We are so interconnected. Tend your seeds of goodness, dedicate yourself to what is really your heart's deepest intention and the trust and steadiness you bring will bear fruit now one of the things that happens as we talk on these evening dharma teachings sometimes in the mornings too is that there is a a tendency to give more emphasis in words or in our own minds to the sitting meditation. But as Hugh said this morning, the practice and the seeds that get planted in walking can be as profound and illuminating. So there was a woman who was here at IMS some years ago on a retreat. I worked with her, and she hated walking meditation. She said, I just can't do it. You know, nothing good comes. I'm so restless and bored. Nothing happens. And I gave her different suggestions. I said, walk slower, walk faster, go outside. I said, close your eyes and do a few steps with your eyes closed to feel inside your body, see what that's like. You know." Or pretend that you're walking on the edge of a high canyon or something. Play with it. Useless, didn't help at all. All these different instructions. Then stand still, do standing and walk a little. Eh, nothing helped. I said, okay, there's one more instruction. Forget sitting and only walk. You will learn. (laughs) Do I have to, she complained. I said, just for a day, a whole day, only walk. Well, we bargained. That's, of course, part of the deal. And in the end, it was the morning. So she wrote this note. Dear Jack, long walking meditation all morning assignment completed. Thank you. Now I can meditate while moving. I thought I might discover why I've been so resistant to it, but circumstances taught me much more. I chose to walk in the annex walking room because it's small, beautiful, and usually quiet. Today, however, it was noisy as hell. There was some guy in there walking like the little engine that could, (laughs) wearing noisy boots even. Well, thought I, surely he'll be gone when the walking period ends. No such luck. This madman pounded his way through an hour and a half nonstop, <laughs> except when he paused to drink or remove a noisy layer of clothing. I tried meta. Surely he must have a lot of pain to be so driven. Then I realized that I wanted to kill the SOB. <laughs> I stood there and noted, hating, hating. Later I stood in the middle of the room and wept, tears, tears. And then I got to the point when I realized whatever problem he had, was his and not mine. And after that, I got quiet, and he was just sound. And so I walked and breathed, and he paced and pounded. And pretty soon, it was all the same to me. His noise, my breath, the movement of my body. And after an hour and a half, he left. Then it was incredibly quiet, which was different, but not as much better as I would have expected mostly just different. This walking meditation stuff is amazing. You can learn things. Thank you. So simple. The willingness to be where we are and to tend to that, including the tears and the anger and the judgment, all those kinds of... There's the angry mind, there's the judging mind, there's the weeping, so forth. There's a kind of steadfastness in this, that is so inspiring. I look at the picture of Aung San Suu Kyi, which I can hold up for you, the Nobel Prize winner in Burma, who meditates as you are. Only now she's in her fifteenth year of house arrest in in Rangoon. She was let out for a couple of years there for a bit. Um, And unable to leave, even though her husband died of cancer a couple of years ago, her children graduated from college, she couldn't go unless she agreed never to come back to Burma, which she was quite unwilling to do. And she's kind of my age. She's probably in her early 60s and small and made of steel. because in the face of tremendous suffering in Burma, terrible dictatorship and tremendous injustice for people, she is the the light of so many people's lives. She was elected to be the head of the Burmese government and it was taken away. And she said, I'll stay here for 15 years. She writes about If they answer not your call, walk alone. If they turn away and desert you, walk alone. Ignite the thunder flame of your own heart and let it burn alone. And somehow her spirit is strong enough that it illuminates the lives of tens of millions of Burmese people. One frail woman There is such grace and such beauty that comes when we truly understand tending of the heart When we learn this in ourselves and trust it O oh, nobly born Remember who you really are. Remember what is possible for you. Thoreau who writes, Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. Life is such a mystery. And we take it for granted, you know. But how did you get in here into this human form with little patches of fur in certain places, right? Wiggly things at the end of these limbs. A hole at one end into which you stuff dead plants and animals regularly and grind them up with these bones that hang down, right? And add a little water and move them through the tube. And these kind of I things that are really bizarre. I mean, how did you get into a human body? Who are you? It's so mysterious and deep. And when you begin to listen, you shift your identity from the kind of automatic, habitual, small sense of self to that which is your Buddha nature, your Original mind, as Ajahn Chah calls it. You shift from the small sense of self to that greatness. The seeds that we plant, the garden that we tend, will not be forgotten. They will bear fruit in their time. The Buddha talks about his teachings as the elephant's footprint. He says that uh, the teachings of the Buddha or the teachings of mindfulness in different different verses, he speaks about how um, just as the elephant's footprint is so great that the footprints of all the other animals can fit within, within it. So the teachings of awakening, of liberation, these are the elephant's footprints. So, some years ago, a woman who was quite dedicated to elephants in this country decided to open an elephant sanctuary and bought some very good farmland in Tennessee, which was probably used for raising horses, a couple or a few hundred acres. Knowing that there were old circus elephants and old zoo elephants and so forth that were more or less being put out to pasture, if not, at times, actually being um, killed, put down because they weren't useful anymore. And she loved elephants and their intelligence and their their beauty. So she started the Tennessee Elephant Sanctuary. And I read a story about her in the paper because a few years ago, um, an elephant from Louisiana, I think from the Baton Rouge Zoo, named Shirley had gotten quite old and they decided to put Shirley out to pasture and get a new, elef- new couple of young elephants. And so Shirley was shipped by train to Tennessee. And when a new elephant comes in, instead of putting her into the midst of the elephant herd, first, She or he gets put into a a huge kind of outdoor cage um, next to the sanctuary, and the other elephants can come and kind of make contact and put their trunks in and visit and sniff one another. And After there's some days of connection and things seem okay, then the elephant has added to the herd. Well, the elephants came up to visit Shirley there, and then one of them came up and started trumpeting and beating on the bars and making all this sound. And Shirley did the same thing, and it was really wild. And 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 um, it kind of scared the woman who ran, runs the elephant sanctuary. What's happening to these elephants? And um, so she called back to Baton Rouge. You know, has Shirley ever done this before? You know, and just, you know, have you ever had trouble with her as an elephant? No, and so forth. And began to ask a series of questions and then finally discovered that Shirley and this other elephant had been in the circus together 25 years before for two years and they hadn't seen each other for a quarter of a century and they were really good friends and they were just excited, you know, girlfriends. So when... Shirley was let out, and I've seen videos of it. These two elephants became, you know, just the best friends, and they would put their trunks together and walk around like this, really, you know, as you might with your best friend. The seeds of beauty, of goodness, of caring, will not be lost. They will not be forgotten. They will bear fruit. And the seeds in the heart bear the best fruit of all. When we nourish and trust and inhabit that which is wise and present and beautiful in us, it grows. Bloom where you are planted, it says. So I look out here, and in a way, you know, it's a meditation hall. In another way, it's really like a greenhouse. I think of it as all these potted Buddha plants, right, sitting here and kind of watering once in a while and whatever, each blooming in your own unique way. So maybe that's enough words to say. It's a beautiful thing that we're doing. Difficult, yes, and really worthy. The world so much needs human beings who aren't afraid to face their own mind, their own fears, their own confusion, their own prejudice, and to allow something beautiful to be born out of that. So it's for yourself Yes, but it's also for everyone that you love and know and all that they touch, this growth of wisdom. And I'm so glad that we get to, to share this. A last poem for you, this from a Tibetan poet, contemporary, who writes in English, named Nodup, Nodup, Paljor. He writes, Robert Frost and I have one thing in common. He loves woods, and so do I. But there seems to be a big difference in the way we set forth in life's journey. He's a goer, and I'm a sitter. He has miles and miles to go before he sleeps, while I have years and years to sit to reach the same destination. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. There's time for walking meditation, and then we'll sit again, and we'll also have a a chant in the evenings, um, at the the last sitting to help keep you awake, interested, amused. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.